Welcome back to the Space Albi Institute podcast. I'm Andrew Pettiprin, talking as always to Bobby Mixa. Bobby, we are going to do something a little different today. I'm going to do a little self-promotion, but I think it will be in the vein of of our overall project uh, in our venture here at the Space Albi Institute. What do you think? I'm, I'm excited about this, Andrew. You have a new book out, uh, Popcorn with the Pope. So mm-hmm. um, I haven't gotten my copy yet, but... I have read one of the chapters, which is up there on the Space Albi Institute website. So check that out. But uh, Andrew, yeah, this is a book. Tell us a little bit about this book. Yeah, for our viewers, our audio only listeners will not be able to see this. But for our viewers, here is a copy of the book, Popcorn with the Pope, A Guide to the Vatican Film List. And uh, it's co-authored by David Paul Baird and Father Michael Ward, who's a priest of the Ordinariate of the the personal ordinariate of Our Lady of Walsingham in England, former Anglican like me. Actually, David Baird and Michael Ward and I are all former Anglicans. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Yeah. Wow. So many uh, so many intellectual types and like cultured types just cross the typer. I and mean, from it's like almost the Anglican church is the, is the last step uh, it, to the Catholic yeah. church. It is a bit of a, a way station these days uh, in, into into the fullness of the faith for a lot of people. But anyway, yeah, so we've got this new book out, Popcorn with the Pope, A Guide to the Vatican Film List. And let me ask you, do you, we, you do, because we've talked about this a lot, because I've been writing this book and working on it for a long time, but until maybe, I don't know, two, three years ago, had you ever heard of the Vatican Film List? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I, I, I didn't you had. hear of the Vatican Film List. And in fact, at one point, I had a goal of just trying to go and watch all of those movies because uh, I was living in an area with um, the library had some a lot a lot of these art house films uh, with the Criterion list and mm-hmm. so I was like oh my gosh these are the same movies it's around th- that time that I found the list and so I could just go rent those movies that's how I like watched the sacrifice and a number of the yeah. others but how about you Andrew did you did you hear about the list I'm surprised how many people actually haven't heard of the list including some I know. big names. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So. so one of the, yeah, you're exactly right. You know this already, but I'll tell our audience. One of the endorsers of our book on the back here is George Weigel, the famous George Weigel oh. who wrote the great, the great biography of St. John Paul II, very, very, very well-known figure in Catholic media and uh, kind of intellectual circles. And I wrote to him to find out more about the origin of the Vatican film list, because it came out, I'll talk about this in a second, but it came out in 1995, right when George Weigel was essentially writing the book, right, on yeah. John Paul II. And he himself had never heard of the list. So he do, he's heard of it now because he's endorsed our book. But uh, this <laughs> does is, he, this does is really... he say, uh, until Andrew wrote no. to me? I, okay. <laughs> no, he doesn't. I'm sorry. I hope I'm not embarrassing him if anyone... If he's listening, I'm sure you're not listening, are you, George? But if you are, I hope you are. I think you'd like this podcast. But anyway, sorry, I don't mean to embarrass you. I, th- I think it's, it's. Uh, I don't think it, it's not public that well, you didn't know about this list. I mean, John Paul II, too. I mean, it's, it's, it's he's a theater man. So yeah. I know that it's, they've been making a lot of, this is John Paul II's list. But mm-hmm. I kept thinking, well, did John Paul II like sit down and watch all these films? No, no. Um, and in fact, George Weigel told me this. He said, he, to his knowledge, he didn't think John Paul II was much of a film guy at all. Yeah. Uh, and he said, he told me, I told you this before, but again, our listeners might appreciate this. He told me that John Paul II's idea of a fun evening was curling up in bed with a copy of Eugene Levinas. Uh, reading Levinas. Levinas, yeah. Oh, why did I say Eugene Levinas? Is there know, we're talking about Eugene McCrary an awful lot. Oh my so gosh! I mean, right. Anyway, maybe, Levinas. Maybe, maybe it's him. We talked to Eugene Diamond the other day. My goodness, Gene, if you're yeah. listening. Um, but yeah, yeah sorry, no, Levinas. Emmanuel Levinas. Yeah. So, but that's really interesting because Levinas is very influential for certain filmmakers, especially the Dardenne brothers of, of Belgium. Yeah. But anyway, that's by the by. Let me Andrew, explain yeah. a little bit though, why, why, like going off a little bit on Levinas' philosophy and why mm-hmm. that it finds its way into the Dardenne films. What's that about? Because I haven't well, seen any of the Dardenne films yet. Okay, well, since you asked, I'll just, I'll just say this real quick and then I want to talk about yeah. the origin of the yeah. list. But so Eugene Levinas, 
you know, was a philosopher, a great philosopher of the 20th century. He was Jewish. He never became Catholic, but was always very interested in Catholicism. I believe he was born in Lithuania, but mostly yeah. raised in France. He was a prisoner of war during the Second World, not the First World War, surely. No, the Second, of course, Second World yeah. War. But so he was not sent to a concentration camp, even though he was Jewish, um, because he was serving in the French army. Uh, but he had a very tough time as a prisoner of war during World War II. And he came out and he started writing this philosophy. And a lot of what he wrote about was kind of related to this Martin, the Martin Buber stuff, like the I, thou, like the kind of the idea of like this, this connection between individuals and God. And yeah. he had this whole thing about, it's kind of this like theistic turning on its head of the whole like existential, existentialist Sartrean notion of the gaze. You know, it's like sort of seeing to truly see someone is yeah. to regard them as a subject, as an other um, and, a, and a, a creature of dignity. And so this makes its way into film, into filmmaking big time. I mean, in a sense, like that's some of the best films are, are fixated on that very issue. And the Darden brothers are these realist um, filmmakers with a strong philosophical underpinning. From, from Belgium, they made a whole bunch of great movies and their early films in particular, if you read their journals and stuff, are directly related to the philosophy of Emmanuel Levinas. Uh, and it's all about like looking at people from behind, not willing to look at them in the face, the difference in the relationship when you can see someone face to face. I mean, Levinas said that the person you can see face to face is the one you cannot kill. Unless you're like, yeah. A psycho, right? So, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, Wow, that's yeah. Well, let's get back to the film list. So yeah. What's the well, unfortunately, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, unfortunately, there are no Darden Brothers movies on the Vatican film list because it came out just before they made their first major feature film. But the Vatican film list came out in 1995. It the the reason for its appearance is it marks the 100th anniversary of the first what is often kind what is often identified as the first public display of a motion picture the uh, george melius in paris in in 1990 in in 18 sorry 1895 the next year 1896 um pope uh, leo the 13th was the first pope to be captured on film and he blessed the camera he sang an, an ave maria it's it's really something to behold and that set in motion a whole 100 years of uh, of an interesting relationship that the Catholic Church has, you know, had with the motion picture. Um, so the pontifical, gosh, I always forget what it's called. The It's called something different now, but the Pontifical Com Commission on Social Communication, something like that, hmm. is the official group at the Vatican that issued the list. And there are various individuals who are involved in compiling it. Sadly, we don't know a whole lot. Now, if anybody's listening who knows more than I do about this, by all means, let us know. Um, when we wrote the book, we weren't really setting out to write the history of the list, but rather just to write about the films that are on there. And the films that are on there are 45 movies, actually more, because one of the entries is Kishlowski's Decalogue, which is 10 short films. Mm -hmm. But it's officially called 45 movies, and they're divided into three different categories, the categories of art, um, religion, and uh, um, and mora and mor and morals, morality. So art, religion, morality, and some of them you could debate which category they ought to go in best. But it's interesting that the the Vatican decided to put the list out with the films in these categories because it says something really profound about the art form. Because you know it doesn't. It's not. It's not. It's not the church saying yes or no on a film. You know, is something acceptable for a Catholic or is something not? You know, is some you know, it's saying this art form is complicated because it's art. And yeah. so it's gonna serve different functions depending on, you know, a lot of different factors. And so it's a really beautiful thing, actually, especially considering that one of the official ways the church had engaged with the motion picture for a long time, from nineteen, I believe nineteen thirty-six until um all the way up to the early eighties, was through something called the the condemned film film list by the the Legion of Decency, yeah. and there were lots of films that ended up on that list, and some of them are really strange, and some of them make sense, but, um, you know, it, it marked a real change, and I think even though, as to wrap this this part up, even though as you said a moment ago, John Paul II wasn't he was a theater guy, not really a film guy, um, I think that we know right from his letter to artists 
he definitely wanted the church to engage with art in a different way or to or in an expanded way in a way that some of his predecessors maybe just they hadn't lived at the moment when you know things had become apparent the way that they were by the time John Paul II was the pope so the Vatican film list to me is just a really really important thing now it only goes up to 1995 there are all kinds of conversations among people who like the list about what would be on there now if they made a, another version of it i'm not so sure that's ever going to happen but uh, yeah, it was a really, there is no, there is no definitive study. There's no book out, at least in English, about the Vatican film list. So I was really excited to get to participate in this project with, uh, with these two guys, David and Michael. Yeah. And Andrew, name a couple of the movies that you wrote about. I wrote about 11 movies. Uh, so uh, I kind of came onto the project late and I was really delighted to get to participate and when it was all said and done, I ended up getting to pick 11 films that I was really, really pleased to write about. There are a few on the list that I, I might have felt like I kind of got stuck with, but uh, wasn't the case because the ones that I, I got were really great. Some of the ones I got are some of the most popular films on the list, including It's a Wonderful Life, the great Frank Capra Christmas movie, uh, The Wizard of Oz, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick's great kind of science fiction masterpiece. Uh, Fantasia, the Disney, the Disney movie. Those are some of the most popular ones that I got. But I also got just some real, real classics. I got um, uh, Carl Theodore Dreyer's, two of his films, actually, Danish filmmaker, who bridged the gap between the silent era and the and the talkie era. Um, I, I got his um, The Passion of Joan of Arc, which is one of the greatest silent films ever made and, and maybe one of the last great silent films ever made came out right at the end of the twenties. And then I also got to write about his film or which is a much later film. He made that in the fifties later in his career. And um, that I'd be happy to talk about that one a little bit more. That one is just astonishingly good. I mean, that one is as good as any movie just about that I've ever seen. So I was so, so pleased to get to write about that one. And I got to write about Louis Malle's film, um, Au Voir les Enfants, great World War II movie, but it was made in the 80s. I got to write about uh, Jean Renoir's film, um, The Grand Illusion, which, as you said, we posted on our website. Uh, our, our our editor gave, gave us permission, gave me permission to post that on the Space Albi Institute website. Um, I did Louis Bunuel's film called Nazarene, which is a film about, it's a film that's kind of reminiscent or kind of in the same vein as Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory, sort of about a, a priest who's sort of lost, and but is ultimately kind of given the opportunity to do something special. Hmm. Um, what else? Those are the ones that I can remember off the top of my head. There, there are several others. Well, were there any films like, I know everybody should know that Andrew, go watch his watch your, your watch with me film series um when we were working together everybody knew andrew as like the film bop so any film uh we'd go you know it was always the question of what movies did andrew not see has andrew not seen yet um but i from i remember from what i remember you saw most of the movies that we would name at the lunch table um but were there any films besides the ones that you had to write about were there any films that you you didn't see that you eventually went to go watch just because on the list. Yeah. Yeah. There are quite a few. And well, let me back up and say, I, that this is, this is always an anxiety for people who write about movies or, or music or books or whatever is uh, whether you've seen enough to be, to really qualify as, as an expert. And I can assure you, I, I am far, far from a real, film nerd. I mean, Martin Scorsese watches like two or three movies a day. Doesn't Tom and Cruise do the same though? Tom Cruise watches a lot of movies. Yeah. I mean, there, there are people like that. Now I'm not saying that I wouldn't possibly like that life. Um, but I, I don't know that, that even that is a little bit much for me. What has always interested me though. Yeah. I mean, I've seen lots and lots of movies for sure, but there are movies on the list that I haven't still haven't seen. Like for example, um, Michael Ward reviewed the five hour silent film from 1927 about Napoleon. Now, I just watched Ridley Scott's Napoleon and wrote a, an essay about it, but I wrote that essay without ever having seen this early masterpiece uh, of the silent era about Napoleon because I just haven't gotten around to it and it's really long. There are quite a few others, actually, some even some really notable ones on the list that I haven't that I haven't watched. But there are also some on the list that I hadn't seen before and I have now seen. 
and even written about. Like, for example, um, you mentioned Tarkovsky's The Sacrifice a moment ago. I had never seen The Sacrifice until probably a couple, I don't know, two or three months ago. And I had seen uh, Tarkovsky's- I was surprised that movie was on the list, by the way. Okay, um, let's talk about that for a second. I, I mean, Tarkovsky, yeah, go ahead. Well, okay, uh, when I first saw the list, like you mentioned a little bit uh, earlier that this is not necessarily like a puritanical, like approved list because of um, certain, you know, like you, you mentioned the, um, what was the, like some kind of like list of decency. Um, yeah, Legion of Decency. Yeah, but when I when I went to go watch some of these films, like, you know, we just mentioned Tarkovsky's film, but even, um, and I'll get back to this a little bit later, Kishlowski's Decalogue. Um, mm -hmm. Those 10 films are, are I, I believe, some of the best films ever made. Um, Roger Ebert used to have a whole class just on the Decalogue at University of Chicago. Um, but there's, they're also dealing with some really, really, really like um, complex stuff. And they're not like necessarily things that children, uh, films that you feel comfortable watching with children. Um, so mm -hmm. anyways, it actually, for me, the fact that they, they chose this list without that becoming like a, a, a prime concern was, was really interesting to me. Um, and it, it seemed to be a little bit of a, um, a, a little different than what I see many film, Catholic film commentators, like the approach they take to some movies. Um, it just doesn't seem like that's necessarily the approach coming out of, out of the mm -hmm. Vatican, at least in 1995. Under yeah. At least John Paul II had to sign off on the list. So um, yeah. you think, you think you would, but... But anyways, going back to like Tarkovsky, the sacrifice. When I that that was one of the movies that I wanted to go watch when I saw the list, and um, that movie, like a good film, stays with you for days, not only days, but like over the years, and mm -hmm. you just want to keep going back to it. It's like one watching yeah. one 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 view of that film is not enough. And every time you may like appreciate it in the beginning and like appreciate or oh, the camera angles or like the actors or the plot and the meaning that you experience, but then you keep going back to it. Um, I remember Martin Scorsese, speaking of Martin Scorsese, uh, someone asked him like, what makes a film great? And that's how, that's actually how he defined it. Uh, it was mm -hmm. just, there's a depth to it that you just you just keep coming back to it. And Tarkovsky films, I haven't seen, I think you've seen more Tarkovsky films than I have, but the few Tarkovsky films that I have seen, it's like there's some wellspring of meaning in these films that like a good poem, you just, it's gonna just grow on you for, for years. And so um, mm -hmm. I went back and watched, after we talked with the summer about the sacrifice, I watched some of the scenes again, um, but also, uh, it's interesting that Tarkovsky is kind of like one of these almost, uh, he, he's not just a, a director like the, um, oh, what's the name of those silly Marvel brothers, the Russo brothers, you know, uh -huh. just commanding people to look at like tennis balls all day, you know, and get jacked and, you know, and just act like they, you know, landed from the moon. Um, but Actually, yeah. these directors are artists. So, yeah. yeah. Can you say a little bit about Tarkovsky? Yeah. Well, yeah, hang on. Yeah, let me say something about Tarkovsky. I think there's a lot there. Let me back up and just and affirm what you said about how a great movie sticks with you. And I think that the thing about this list, and there should be debates about what movies are on the list and, and aren't, um, but I do think all the movies on this list have that quality, at least all the ones that I've seen have that quality of just sticking with you and just mean and just clearly conveying meaning, mm -hmm. but conveying meaning in a way that is as complex as meaning as meaning, like as us creatures who are trying to make that meaning, you know, yeah. I mean, for example, there are multiple films on the list that have nudity in them. So that that wasn't that didn't rule. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing super graphic in any of the films, but Schindler's List, I didn't mention that one. That's, you know, Steven Spielberg's great film, Schindler's List. That has nudity in it. Um, um, a, 
along with a lot of other pretty brutal stuff to look at, but that didn't rule it out from being on the list. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when it comes to Tarkovsky, so if our listeners aren't familiar with him, Andrei Tarkovsky was a great, a great Russian Soviet um, filmmaker. He didn't make a ton of films. I believe, gosh, you might, you might know better than I do. I think he only made. So like seven films. Not Yeah. Maybe seven, eight, nine, something okay. like that. Seven, seven or eight feature films so he didn't make a ton of movies but he's just a giant i mean he he is in in kind of the cinema world you know there's tarkovsky there's ingmar bergman there's fellini there are a few of these just giants from the kind of major i don't know what we'd call that period it's not really early cinema it's not necessarily like golden age but it's sort of the the era of the auteur i guess we would say um he's at the top of the heap no question about it and his great film Andrei Rublev is is on the list, and and that's no surprise. Andrei Rublev was the the Russian icon painter who painted the, you know this of course, Bobby, but who painted the the image of Abraham and his two guests, which is interpreted as kind of an image of the Trinity, or not Abraham and his two guests, but but the three the, the three, three God, figures yeah. three right, um, that's sort of interpreted as a trinitarian kind of type in the Old Testament, right, and. Um, but it's sort of about his journey and it's very long and it is not an easy film to watch, but boy, howdy, that is a movie that will stick with you. Now, a lot of his other movies, so the only two that made it on the list were Andre Rublev, which was a relatively early film. He made that in 1966, co-written by Andre Konchalovsky, who's another great Russian director in his own right. But then his last film, The Sacrifice from 1986 is on the list. And Left off the list would would include Nostalgia, which is his film from a little bit earlier in the 1980s, which I think, I mean, I think that absolutely belongs on the list. I mean, that to me is just a profound movie about kind of religious journey and art. It's and I mean, gosh, I mean, how do you even describe the the complexity of these films? But um, but then I would also include Stalker, um, a, a film he made in the early 70s is. I can't see why you'd keep that off the list. A lot of people think The Mirror is his very best film. I actually haven't seen it, but there are people who want to put that on the list. Solaris is a great science fiction movie that he's made that I've never, frankly, made it all the way through. But that problem is with me, not with the film. Um, so, yeah, it just goes to show you. And then, you know, it, the same with Fellini. You know, La Strada's on the list and Eight and a Half's on the list. You know, there are others that are left off. Um, you know, um, Roberto Rossellini. Um, the Flowers of St. Francis is on the list. Rome Open City is on the list. Some of his other ones aren't. So, you know, at some point, maybe they're just picking certain ones because they can't pick everything by certain directors. Bergman, right? Wild Strawberries is on the list. And um, The Seventh Seal is on the list, but lots of his other ones aren't. So anyway, the, the list is chock full of that kind of stuff, like that best of all time type cinema. But then it's also got some things that I had never heard of before, stuff that I probably wouldn't have wouldn't have seen if not for the list. And one of them, uh, one, well, two of them would be those drier films that I got to review, The Passion of Joan of Arc and um, Ordet, which again, the fault is with me that I hadn't ever seen them before, but there's only so much time and, you know, you just, you might see it on the shelf and think, oh, a really great Danish movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe I'll get around to that one someday, but then you watch it and it changes your life. Yeah. So. Well, going back to um, Tarkovsky, you know, I know you were reading his his memoir, right? Um, his and, diaries, yeah. Okay, no, his diaries. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's really interesting. I haven't read the diaries myself, but I was looking at some of his thoughts on cinema as kind of cinema is like a way of kind of re-enchanting the world in a way. I mean, you mentioned Andrei Rublev, Rublev, but you can't help but think that maybe Russian iconography perhaps influenced some of his thoughts about mm -hmm. cinema itself. Like when you watch those films too, you have a sense that you mentioned uh, Levinas and Levinas, you know, growing up in Lithuania, but being within kind of a Russian environment as well, must've had a lot of influence, um, but you know, he must've been influenced by the icons as well, but this kind of sense that it's, it's instead of looking at something as an object, the thing is in some ways gazing out at you and yeah. that that the gaze uh in some ways draws you into its world 
And yeah. once you have that through the icons, whether it's a saint or Christ, the, the gaze of those saints will draw you into the divine life. So I wonder, like, you know, when you watch a good film, like I'm thinking of, um, sorry, I'm jumping around a little bit here, but the very beginning of, of Kishlowski's Decalogue, um, and you had that kind of airy music in the background, um, and then it just focuses in on this character who is hovering, warming himself at this, on the, by this fire. Um, and he's look, he's kind of like, he doesn't look like he fits into this, you know, society like the Warsaw of the 1990s. Um, and he's warming himself and he just looks up at the camera and just gazes there for a while. And then a teardrop falls down. And you see this character throughout the, you know, uh, the Decalogue, he appears every now and then. And he's almost kind of like an angel, like in some ways watching the human drama unfold. And yet yeah. is, in, is, is touched by it. And anyways, but that gaze, beginning with the gaze, you can't help but think that there's some, there's some influence um, in there uh, by Kishlowski, by Andrei Tarkovsky and his films. Um, so yeah. I don't know. Do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, several thoughts. Well, I think, yeah, I think that that's, that's right on about Tarkovsky and iconography and kind of the Eastern, the Eastern Christian uh, iconographic visual, like sort of visual presentation. Mm -hmm. I think that in the West, um, some of that may obtain as well, but I, I think often about how Eric Romare, who's one of my very favorite film directors, French director, who was the editor of the Cahier du Cinéma, which was the, the, the French New Wave journal in, um, in the 50s and 60s and beyond, uh, he likened cinema to sculpture. And so there's a similar sense of kind of like looking at something like in mo like frozen in motion that that elicits a kind of like in, in that you're you're like gazing on something humane, right? We're not talking about Tracy Eamon's bed or, you know, um, the <laughs> urinal sculpture or whatever from whatever his name was. You know, we're talking about sort of, you know, a, a, like sort of classical sculpture, right? And so, but this was something the church and and kind of Christians in general, it took a little time to figure this out about cinema. Like people really weren't sure at first that that's what it was. And to this day, it doesn't, it, it, it often isn't that, right? I mean, it is just kind of just, just this objectifying entertainment, right? So like, by the, so I mentioned before that, that Pope Leo the 13th, 1896, he was the first Pope to be, to be, captured on camera. A couple decades later, one of his successors, um, Pope Pius XI, this is the, the late 20s and 30s, cinema has sort of overtaken everything else as the most popular form of entertainment. And the church is still like trying to figure out what that means. And and ultimately, it's not that, that Pius XI like condemned film per se, but it seemed like the way that he approached it in two different documents. One of them is um, a document on Christian education called Divini Ilius Magistri. And then another one is about film. It's called Vigilante Cura. In both of those, the, it's really more concern about cinema, right? Like, what? How, how do we need to kind of limit its influence? You know, it's like a kind of bread and circuses type thing, which, as we know, is can be very, very much the case. And it's out of this that the Legion of Decency is born. But a couple decades later, his successor, Pope Pius XII, everybody realized by this point, yeah, I mean, cinema can be this really lame, you know, this, this, this awful basis form of entertainment, but it can also be, and in fact has become, the premier art form, period. And so the church has to respond to that differently. Like, you know, we have to understand that it can function in this different kind of way. And so I think really presciently, um, Pope Pius XII wrote about film, and he he actually laid out criteria for an ideal film. This is in 1955. And some of the principles that he talks about are still ones that I think every Christian film viewer looking at any of these films on the Vatican film list or any film at all ought to be thinking about. Like, rather than thinking like, oh gosh, is there is there nudity in this film? Or, oh gosh, is there cussing in this film? Or, oh, is this going to kind of specifically teach the faith to somebody in some kind of different way? Pius XII says the things that we want out of a film are a depiction of respect for man, he says. 
You know, again, it's like that Levinas, like looking at with dignity thing. Um, and he says that filmmakers should have loving understanding about their subjects. And now what does that look like? It looks like a lot of different things, you know, it could be. And so that then some films are like really hard to watch because the filmmaker is showing us with loving understanding the trials of somebody whose life is horrible, you know, or whatever it may be. Right. And the filmmakers themselves don't need to be necessarily approaching their subjects with like any particular like creedal commitments necessarily, maybe any more than the great artists of of the Christian past did. I mean, some of them did, obviously. Bach, right? He wrote for for God on everything and, you know, Mozart probably, right? Um, Michelangelo, yeah, but he had a complicated kind of personal life. So it just goes on and on from there. But like the, the church, to make a, to boil it down, you know, the church came to this understanding that cinema was a very important art form and had to be, you know, it could be abused and not treated, not not done that way, but the church needed to engage with it kind of at its best. And that's that's kind of what the Vatican film list is meant to do. So, yeah, what are your thoughts like seeing cinema as an art form and making sure that it doesn't just become mere entertainment? Um, you know, a couple of years ago, we were talking about Martin Scorsese's comments about the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe is kind of nothing but a theme theme park, uh, you know, films. Um, Anyways, and he's kind of he's stuck. I'm, I'm he's stuck to his comments, and like he's always defending cinema, but he he really is concerned where everything is going. But it mm -hmm. seems like there's there's some rays of hope for him. Um, you know, he's now making his movies mostly for like Netflix now, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, what were your thoughts when Martin Scorsese uh, came out and said all those things? And where do you see? like cinema today. Yeah, I don't I mean, your your opinion on this is is, is as good as mine and this is something you and I've talked about a lot. You don't want to you know, I always run I run this risk. I I know I probably come across sometimes as as a hater, you know, of of certain aspects of popular culture, which is funny because as we both know popular culture used to be part of my job title. Um I don't I don't hate popular culture. I would just love, I would love for there to be a better, a better popular culture, or or at the very least, a kind of I hearken back, maybe this is too nostalgia, nostalgic of me, but I hearken back to kind of post-war America to some degree, where we had a kind of middle brow entertainment that was that was pretty substantial. You know, like Leonard, um, I remember Leonard Bar Bernstein. Yeah. His, like his shows. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah, or even even before Bernstein, like Tuscanini with like the the NBC orchestra and you know stuff like that. Or I remember my grandparents talking about how like Ed Sullivan, like Ed Sullivan would have the Beatles, which I think the Beatles are great. I would love I'd love for more pop music to be like the Beatles. But but even but even that aside, Ed Sullivan would have the Beatles on one night and he'd have like Maria Callas on the next night, or he would have um, George Balanchine's like troupe of ballet dancers from the New York City Ballet doing Swan Lake or something, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then you had like, you know, you have these figures of popular culture in the mid to late 20th century, like Julia Child. And, you know, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of other examples, like these figures who are popular and speak to a popular audience, but are also like kind of bringing them up a level. Yeah, And that may sound kind of elitist, but in a strange way, I actually think elitism is running in the other direction now, where the elites are sort of just settling too for whatever base things and kind of laughing all the way to the bank about it. Yeah. And that's just, that's just unacceptable in, in my view. As far as, you know, maybe I'll stop there. I don't know if I need to say anything about well, the Marvel stuff. You know, like my, my grandma on my mom's side, I mean, kind of in many respects, a lot of the culture that I received um, was through her. And so we would, I mean, she grew up, you know, going to the ballet in Chicago. Um, she was, you know, I remember all the art around her house. Uh, it was always some, you know, impressionist art that you'd find in the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, and then she had like a, a record player um, and there were just all these great, records and the piano was there 
Um, she also was a ballet teacher. So, but in so many respects, she kind of grew up in, and by the way, she used to like, listen, I, she had like West Side Story stuff, Leonard Bernstein stuff of going all the time. And um, also we would spend most of our weekends at grandma's house. And we would watch, you know, with pizza and some Coke, um, we would watch Siskel and Ebert. And I just loved that show as a kid because they would take the, you know, the movies that just came out that are coming out that Friday, you know, and they, the two film buffs would just, they just go back and forth. And the conversation was, was like, you know, it was easy enough for somebody who wasn't, you know, a, a film expert to understand, but you always came away feeling like they, you know, they helped you better understand the art form of cinema. And yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I agree with you that like, well, do we have that today? And I think we do, but it seems like in so many respects, the industry, um, I was listening to something the other day about uh, the music industry. So maybe I'll just, Use that, and I think it is a little bit paralleled with the movie industry. But um, they're taking like TikTok as their savior, and now they want to have songs that like they can only have like you know little videos that are like 16 seconds long, and so now they want songs that can like fit the 16 seconds. Mm -hmm. But the guy who was listening to commentating on the, on the movie on the music industry, Ted Joya was talking about how, like, no, just why, why are you confining yourselves to what this new social media platform wants to do? And why yeah. do you think that that's exactly what people want? Um, and maybe you do have some statistic or something to say, okay, well, we should, we're justified in making these decisions and supporting yeah. this stuff. But maybe, maybe there's, there's other things, there's other things where people are actually listening to podcasts for like two hours um, yeah. or even longer than that. And so yeah. there's hope. I mean, people, people will go see a great movie that will be, they will sit through like a three hour Oppenheimer film, which by the way, like I brought students to the film. They all sat through that movie for three hours mm -hmm. and came away and loved it. Um, and I would have said before that, that they wouldn't have been capable of that because they're looking at their phones all day. Yeah. Um, and you know it's just really concerning that if if we are actually doing that, what are we doing to the culture too, where they can't attend to anything? We we're talking about this last week with DC Schindler, where it's like our habits of attention are just dwindling. Yeah, um, for a lot of people, yeah. I think you know I was thinking about this the other day. Um, my my daughter Amy was um, dancing all weekend. She's she she's a dancer. She you know she's in sixth grade, but that's her that's her life. She dances hours and hours a week at a dance studio. And uh, something that the head of the studio said when she came out to introduce the show, Amy danced in five shows this weekend, and but there were ten. You know there were some girls who danced in even more. And um, the the head of the studio came out and specifically said. Uh, something like, this is a lot of hours that your children have not been looking at phones. You know, yeah. like a lot of hours went into creating what you're about to see. Because of course, it's impossible to look at a phone when you're when you're trying to dance, right? Now, it's not impossible to look at a phone when you're trying to watch a movie, except that it is. I mean, you can physically sit there and look at your phone, but you're not going to get out of a film on the Vatican film list or any great film what the artist wants you to see if your attention is divided uh, any more than it would be if you're reading a novel and trying to read something else at the same time, right? Yeah. So I would say there are signs of hope. Yeah, I mean, right. Joe Rogan's podcast, people sit there and listen for three hours or something. And people really, people went to see Oppenheimer. And it's funny, it was a kind of Christopher Nolan was, a, it was kind of an I told you so. Like he, he really believed people would come out and watch this movie. And a lot of people didn't think that they, that they would. And they did. So it's yeah. great. But, you know, one of the things that just last point on this, one of the things that we have talked about with this book, the popcorn, popcorn with the Pope, a guide to the Vatican film list is a lot of people want to focus on how the films themselves can serve the purpose of evangelization for the Christian gospel, which I think is, is, is right. But I think there's another thing, another kind of the flip side of that is by writing this book and highlighting the fact that this list exists, we want to, in a sense, kind of evangelize for cinema, you know, we want, we want like, we want as Christians to say movies are great. 
We want more of them. We want better ones. We don't want another Marvel movie. We want another, you know, we want another eight and a half or we want another 2001 A Space Odyssey or whatever it is. Can we go on that a little bit more? Um, because, and please, I guess our audience, like this is like, I, this is just my opinion, man. Um, so anyways, some of the films that, you know, like Catholics really get excited about. Oftentimes I'll go watch these films that are just, you know, seemingly just made for, for the Christian community. And I'll just walk away and I'll think like, oh my gosh, okay. That film was made exactly just for one purpose, to get this message across. And perhaps maybe, maybe it, yeah, it did succeed in getting that message across, but I would never go back and watch that. I got the message. I'm not going to go back and watch the film. The mm -hmm. film lacks depth. Okay. Mm -hmm. And in some ways it, I wouldn't even call it cinema. Uh, and yet we still have like people encouraging like this stuff and saying like, this is, this is, this is Catholic cinema. And I just, I'm, I'm to be honest, I'm quite embarrassed. If I ever had to go to like, if Martin Scorsese is like, hey, show us like some, you know, some of the work that Catholic directors, like faithful practicing Catholic directors are what they're doing. And then you give them this stuff. I feel like Martin Scorsese would, would, would really, um, I mean, probably grow even further from the faith. Yeah. Well, I mean, real art, really can't succeed if it's too like ideological you know or, or if it's too if it's really too much about trying to say a specific thing it's probably not going to be that good it just isn't and so i think what's happened unfortunately i've seen this increase in my lifetime but i think it has pretty much been around my whole lifetime our whole lifetime is as as people perceive that hollywood has a certain agenda and message that it's trying to push on the population, which we can point to lots of examples of where that seems to be the case. Maybe examples where that isn't necessarily the case, but a lot of examples where that does seem to be the case. There has then, there has then arisen this feeling that, oh, well, we need to get our message across. So we need to kind of do the same thing, but we need to kind of have our, you know, do it our way. And what you end up end up with is two sides of a coin that isn't very valuable. You know, like why would you want to do what Hollywood does not very well, like less well than they do? Um, you know, I just think we have kind of the wrong, the wrong idea about about all of this sort of thing. And I I say this as somebody who admittedly I love the art of cinema. And I love, you know, I love like I love the art of novels or painting or sculpture or whatever it is. I am not that interested in propaganda. And um I, I feel, you know manipulated when I know that's going on, even if it's something I pretty much agree with. And now I, I don't want to be too hard on this because there are things that like different things serve different purposes, like, you know, um, St. Paul's image of like milk and meat, right. That Augustine makes a lot of too. Like there are people who just kind of need milk and that's fine. And there will be forms of entertainment that are suitable to them. And again, that's fine. But what I worry about is that that becomes that becomes held up as sort of something that's really for every Catholic or every Christian or every conservative or every traditional person, like whatever category it is that we want to, that we want to point to. I, that's just really tiresome to me. And I think we we're going to have to get past that. I think there are people who want to really faithful people who want to do that, but you know, it's just, it's hard to get things made. And, you know, may, maybe though we're entering a new era where with, you know, with different technologies and stuff. I hate to praise technology, but uh, with different technologies and stuff, people can make films with a little more ease that they might be able to distribute with a little more ease than would have been the case in the past. And maybe we'll start seeing more things. But I mean, I fear what's happening is our culture is becoming cultures and just fragmenting all over the place. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just more and more difficult to create things that can like really speak to the culture. Yeah. You know, kind of going on what you've written about before and that we're fragmenting into a bunch of cultures, um, it's really hard to find other people uh, who have seen the same things. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it's it, it kind of is 
with the new like art house films that are coming out. I mean, I'm not expecting everybody to go watch these films, but like, I'm, I'm sure there's like a handful, I can count on my hand, the Right. number of people who have seen the film. Well, there Um, always were, I mean, there always were when I was coming up as a cinephile, there always were like certain, you know, certain films that you would be proud that you had seen that other people hadn't seen. Right. And then you would kind of, you know, congregate with people who were into that same thing. And maybe that's like, you know, people who had seen Bergman films or like whatever. But The thing that has really changed over the last 30 years, I think, is the 90s was the end of the era where pretty much everybody had seen all the movies that were also critically acclaimed. So, for example, the movies that won Best Picture in the 90s were movies that everybody had seen. And they were also not, not bad movies. I mean, some of them weren't, weren't great, but, um, but they were... They were Let's think, let's they, think of something. Schindler's List won Schindler's Best List... Picture. You know, I mean, Um, some of them, again, aren't like that great. Like Forrest Gump to me is a movie that hasn't aged well. I don't really like that movie anymore. But, you know, it was one that was popular and it was made by a bona fide filmmaker and it had real a real star in it who knew how to act, you know. Um, right. Braveheart. Um, you know, and, and it goes on. Maybe it comes into the it comes into the 2000s a little bit, too. Or let's let's even not even not. talk about the ones that won, but the ones that were nominated or the, or the performers that were nominated, you know, things like that. And then even the kind of indie things with the rise of Miramax, you know, then this, this like really high quality indie stuff, so-called indie stuff becomes popular at the end of the nineties. And then, I mean, I arguably, I think like the late nineties is as good as the sixties is in terms of like, just, just consistently high quality films that are also widely seen, you know, Um, but that's all changed now. You know, the Golden Globe nominations just came out yesterday. The Oscars, the Oscar nominations will come out in the new year. Some of the, you know, a lot of the movies I've seen, but a lot of them I haven't. And in recent years, a lot of the ones that have been winning have been winning for reasons that I'm sorry to say are just obviously not related to the fact that lots of people like the movie. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's just a really Can't strange even remember place to be. the film that won Best Picture last year. Um, uh, I'm forgetting now too. I mean, and some of them, some of them are good, like Parasite, and you know, I don't know. There are a few others that were that were good, but not not like widely seen and acclaimed. And some of them, you remember that year that La La Land? We thought La La Land had won because um, Oh, yeah. because uh, Warren Beatty announced it, but it was it wasn't the winner. It turned out to be this other movie that whose title I now can't even remember. I don't think La La Land should have won. I don't think that's a best picture quality picture, but it's really interesting that that was the one that we thought won briefly. And then it turns out it's like, Oh no, it's actually this other movie that nobody's ever heard of. And it just, the whole thing ended in this kind of bizarre, you know, kind of, it was like kind of theater of the absurd or something like that. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember that. Um, well, I mean, this year, perhaps maybe Oppenheimer will win Yeah. Best And Picture. I think that will be encouraging if it does. I think that it's, it's, it's an excellent, excellent movie. I think that Christopher Nolan, he makes great movies and Oppenheimer is a great movie. So I think that would be great if that, if that were to win, but you know, what is it, what does its victory say about the state of cinema beyond itself? I don't know. I, I'm not really sure. I think that, you know, as long as we, have nolan and maybe we have like others who are kind of of his caliber then that's encouraging um but uh i don't know cinema as an art form i think really needs to refocus on on the vision of the humane you know and i i think like I th you mentioned marvel movies i mean nobody watches a marvel movie thinking it will or should win awards and that's kind of a problem don't you think i mean like why would you go to the movies Like knowing that you're going to see a movie that would not be considered a great piece of art. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm a total snob. I probably am. Dear listeners, like you know that about me. I'm sorry. You just have to follow, you know, the, you have to follow every single character's, you know, narrative up to like Thanos and all that. But uh, I don't know. The last Marvel film, I have to admit, I saw the two Avenger films in the theater, but I don't think I've seen another Marvel film since then. I did see that Batman movie, the latest Batman. And we, The we, Batman. we, yeah, initially I kind of liked that movie, but after talking to you, um, 
I think I, I now despise that movie. You don't have to, you um, don't have to listen to my opinion no, about that. On, I, it was on the Polish I, TV the other day. All the, really? Poland gets all these, t- they, they just dub it in the Polish. And then, you know, we've got all these new movies and Batman was on. And I was, I was thinking about your criticism of the film. I'm like, you know, you, you were right. This movie really isn't that good, but um, yeah, you know, just kind of like, lastly, I just want to, it is really kind of sad that, that cinema, even people aren't going to the movie theater uh, anymore. It, well, I mean, I haven't looked at the latest statistics. I know that Top Gun people returned and Tom Cruise gave that, you know, nice thank you uh, message in the beginning. But as a kid, and my dad said, okay, Friday night, I, I used to look like forward to going mm-hmm. to the movie theater the Friday night for the new release um like I, I remember in the morning I would, my dad would get the Chicago Tribune or sometimes and I would go to see okay how many stars did the film get okay. right and yeah. then you'd go see it like okay we got four or three and a half or even three you're like okay good good this is money well spent and then you'd show up early um We'd always show up so early and this was like, unfortunately, we should probably have been so eager to get like to church as we did getting to the movie theater. But um, we, we would just wait and just being in, in that darkened theater and then the previews come on. I mean that, and looking forward to next year's or the next, the films that are coming out in the next, you know, couple of months. That was for me, that was like the narrative. I, I grew up on these things and I, it was just this ritual that also gave me this sense of kind of like, um, I don't know, some kind of enchantment. And like, I remember always like the romantic movies, like always almost living my life out at my life out as if I was imitating some character in a film, Mm -hmm. you know? And so those relationships always, always ended, but, um, but I was so steeped in the films uh, when I was a kid. And so today to hear like from the students, well, how do you view stuff? And I'm gonna sound like an old man right now, but like they just watch YouTube videos all the time or these yeah. little clips. I'm like, okay, wait a minute here. When yeah. was the last time that you went to the movie theater and actually just sat there and watched? Yeah, I think the going there and seeing it and having that experience on the big screen just immersed is really important to to keep doing. And um, I know movie theaters are really having a hard time and they've changed the way that they do business. You know, you got to book your seat now. I remember one of my favorite things growing up was like walking into the movie theater and 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 like turning the corner when you come in and then seeing, aha, my seat is not taken. We're going to we're going to get right there in the center, you know, and um you know, there was a kind of excitement about that. Yeah, long live, long live the movies, long live movie going. I, I I couldn't agree more. Hey, can I ask you a question before we before we sign off today? Yeah. Okay, so we've got this Vatican film list, forty five movies. But in your opinion, what would you consider? So we are, you know, Catholics. What would you consider to be a great Catholic movie? It doesn't have to be on the list. Any movie. I'm just, I'm very curious about the answer to this question. And I'll, I'll tell you the one that is foremost in my mind right now. Well, I have to actually just look, like think of the list. But what initially comes to my mind is the first, because I mentioned it before, is the first Decalogue, um, Leszek Kokowski. And I know I'm talking about all things Polish because I'm in Poland and my wife is Polish. But I have to say that first film of the Decalogue uh, really moved me and it mm-hmm. showed me because it's about remember I think I've talked about this before I'm not going to explain the whole thing but I've about the father and his son and this, the, the father is I mean he kind of has a technological worldview um, and the son though is asking him these deep questions like what is it what, what is it when you die like, what is death? Because the son sees this dead dog. But behind the scene, like, you know, in the background, you know that the, the mother must be dead. And the father says, well, it's when your, your heart stops. Yeah. And the son just looks at him like, no, that's not that's not the question I'm asking. Um, but the movie then, kind of the son's exploration of these, these kind of like 
existential, um, you know, questions, but some, in some ways being kind of not in prison, but locked in his father's technological world. And it's his aunt who in some ways gives him answers beyond that. And she, she, she uh, shows him a picture. The aunt sometimes brings him to the house and shows him a picture um, of um, the Pope, uh, John Paul II. And he asks her, well, who is that? The Pope. And, and the other question was, there was some question about love. Uh, right after that, and she's like, he's like, well, what? How do you? What? What is? What is love? Mm. And then she gives him a hug, and she says, "That's it." Mm. Um, but then there's a scene in the movie, and I've never like kind of um, like the father. I won't. I won't give it away. But that through this this drama, and also in some ways breaking the ice, or in some ways breaking the. Um, let's say not only the ice uh, of his heart around his heart, but also the kind of like limits of his own worldview. Mm -hmm. In some ways it frees him. And at the very end, what you have is the icon of our lady. And it's the, the, I won't explain why, but candles end up falling in the wax, end up dripping by her eyes. Mm -hmm. Going back to that first scene of yeah. the, the, the guy who's staring into the film like an icon who's also crying. So yeah. I mean, that film, I, I used to show that when I was teaching theology. In my film, when we get to the section on kind of like the enlightenment to kind of say like, hey guys, you know, we may see all things and have a technological systematic view of everything and you rationalize about all things, but perhaps there's a world beyond beyond that. And yeah. that film, that film was in some ways like an excellent way of doing it. And the students would always come back to me and they just, that's, that film s stuck with them. Mm. They kept yeah. asking me about that film. So I was like, okay, perfect. I didn't have to say anything about the film. The film said enough, just right. let it sit. So right. anyways, that's the movie that comes to my mind. How about you, Andrew? Yeah. Well, um, I was thinking I was thinking about this and I I think in my mind now um Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life is about as perfect a catholic movie as I can think of and here's why interesting too that he's not a catholic um I think that that movie it not only is just aesthetically a beautiful movie so I mean I think that's an important criterion right but it is also the themes of that movie are on the one hand about the radical nature of living life as a Catholic, as a Christian. Um, you remember the the scene in the in the church where he's talking to the painter, and the painter is talking about how he he can't paint the real Christ yet because he hasn't suffered enough. Mm -hmm. So it's got that right. But then it's also got this whole other element of the transformation of Christian society in the 20th century. You know, that this town that has all of these marks of the faith ultimately betrays Christ for Hitler, you know? Um, and But the witness of this one man, this simple non-theologian, non-nothing, you know, who just won't go along with it, has, a, has the effect of kind of re-evangelizing the people back home in some yeah. way so that he, would be my he pick paints now the christ with his life right yeah i mean in a sense like you can't paint it you you just have to see it lived you know mm -hmm. so that's what i would say if we were going to do an updated list of um of the vatican film list that would have to be on it you might also want to put tree of life on it another another terrence malick movie there's so many but i think this is an important question for us who are kind of interested in cinema we believe in the importance of art and also take our faith very seriously. That's certainly something we want to do here at the Space Albi Institute. That's right. Well, on that note, Bobby, we better call it a day. If you all out there watching and listening have enjoyed this conversation, please do like it, share it. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Give us a five-star rating wherever you can do that. And check out our website, spacealvinstitute.com, to sign up for our emails. There's a lot of great content on our site. I was just going through it earlier today. Bobby, a lot of great articles on there of yours that you've posted from 
going back quite a ways and some more recent stuff for me. Our podcasts are on there. Lots more good stuff coming your way. So for now, God bless and live in hope.